And what a powerful word that is. I'm Kendi, and I'm so glad to be preaching tonight in this I Am series. It's super exciting to me. And it's kind of amazing to me that we are studying the things that Jesus declared about himself. And I'm guessing that there are some of us here that when we read that psalm, like, memories of hearing the psalm or memorizing the psalm, maybe being at a very somber occasion like a memorial service where that psalm is said, because it's meant to be a balm to us, like a healing words that flow over us. So it's my hope that tonight, as we study about Jesus who said, I am the good shepherd, that we will experience God as our good shepherd. So let's join our hearts in prayer and then we'll dive in. So mighty God, I thank you that you have invited and beckoned and somehow wooed each one of us here tonight. I thank you that we can meet you in this place, that we can not only learn about who you are, but we can learn about who we are in your sight. Thank you that you see us uh, through the gift of the love of your son Jesus. And so open up your scriptures to us tonight that we might understand you and ourselves more fully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it was a while back when my daughter, who's now in graduate school, was in fifth grade. And she was just going into fifth grade. It was that summer before fifth grade where you're like the top of elementary school. She's my oldest. And she went to an overnight camp, the very first overnight camp. Like she was away multiple nights. I dropped her off on Monday, and we went to pick her up on Friday. And we were kind of like a big group like this of parents and friends. We were so eager to see our kids. <clears throat> and they all came, I, they, there were about 100 students who had spent the week with these counselors. And you know they got their camp t-shirts and their shorts and the summer on the lake and it's beautiful. And they all come marching in and they're standing up here like a giant choir and we're out there. And the leader came up to the front and he said in a big voice, God is good. And I thought, this is great. My daughter, the child of two pastors, you know, she's been around this amazing Christian community all week, and she's learned that God is good. And all of a sudden, this booming response came from all the kids all the time. And I was like, what is going on? I had never heard that greeting before. Have you heard it? The person says, God is good. And everybody else says, and then the leader says, all the time, and the people say, Exactly. So as that was happening, and it was so loud, and it, you know, kids at camp, I found myself wondering, is this, is this true? Is this real? It's kind of a weird quirk that I have. Sometimes in the, in the best, biggest moments, I, it's like these little doubts sort, sort of creep in. Sometimes in the midst of the most beautiful night of church life, Christmas Eve, when we're holding up the candles and we're singing Silent Night. And in one way, I'm moved to tears. And in another way, I'm thinking, is, is this real? Did God become a human baby? And he was born in a manger 2,000 years ago? Like, this is incredible. And then there's Easter Sunday. Like, we, we proclaim, he is risen. And the people say, he is risen indeed. It is phenomenal, these claims that we make about who God is. And we make these claims because God himself made these claims about himself. 
So we've been studying for the past few weeks this I am series. It's what God, how God self-identifies. Like if God took one of those kind of online tests about who am I, what are my strengths and all that, it's like, oh, I'm the savior of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the gate. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. Like that is some leadership test, right? There's no greater claim than this one. So God is good all the time. We say this a lot, like when there's something tragic that happens, like in 2015 there was that that flight that went down, it killed 150 people, but there was a soccer team, do you remember this, that switched flights at the last minute? And wouldn't we, if we were their family and friends, say, God is so good, they weren't on that flight. When there's a pileup on the freeway and we pass by that spot just before it happened or just after it happened, we say, phew, God's so good, I missed it. When we, when we guess on a test, and this was me in Hebrew class, and we get a better grade than we think we deserve, when we squeak by, like maybe barely passing, we think, God is good. When a tumor gets tested and it turns out to be benign instead of what we feared, a malignancy, we say, God is good. When a couple that thought they were infertile gets pregnant, we say, God is good. But here's the truth of the matter. God is good all the time. God is good even if your family member was the one on that plane that went down. Or even if you do flunk that final exam. Or the tumor does turn out to be cancer. Or you can't get pregnant. Or you are the one in the pileup and the emergency crew doesn't get there in time. Or the infection gets worse instead of better, or you make a bad investment and you lose your life savings, or your lover doesn't love you anymore, or your parent rejects you or forgets you, or it goes on and on, doesn't it? In these times, do we believe, do we hold on to this reality that God is good? God is good all the time. And how can we possibly believe that? Because of what Jesus says in the passage that we're going to look at tonight, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So turn with me, if you'd like, in your Bible, chapter 10, John chapter 10, if you want to look at it in your phone, that's okay. We continue in these I am statements of Jesus. And remember that for the Jews of the day, hearing these words, I am, was not simply a form of the verb to be, but based on what happened between God and Moses in Exodus 3, This was clearly understood to be the divine name. I am who I am. So when Jesus makes these statements, it's like bright, bold, flashing lights to the Jews. It's like he's saying, I am he. I am the Messiah you're waiting for. I am God himself. So last week, we looked at Jesus saying, I am the gate And and then he says, I have come that you might have life, and you might have it abundantly. And then he goes on in chapter 10, starting in verse 10. There we go. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Why? Why does he call himself the good shepherd? The shepherd is one of the main metaphors for God in the scriptures. I was trying to think if the metaphor were written today, what would, what would God have said about himself? Would it be, you know, I am the good teacher, I am the good medical professional, nurse, doctor, vet, uh, I am the good computer programmer, I am the good marketer, uh, I may be something in the arts, I am the good expresser of truth, I am the good blogger and people follow me, or I am the good coach, or I am the good parent or mentor. But this metaphor tells us not only who God is, but also who we are. We're the sheep. We're the followers. We are not the shepherd. But sometimes, I think we try to be the shepherd. We rely solely on ourselves. One author suggests that when we do this, we exchange the language of the 23rd Psalm that we just read to read this way. I am my own shepherd. I am always in need. I stumble from mall to mall and drink to drink, seeking relief but never finding it. I creep through the valley of the shadow of death and I fall apart. I fear everything from pesticides to power lines and I'm starting to act like my mother. I go down to the weekly staff meetings and I am surrounded by enemies. I go home and even my goldfish scowls at me. I anoint my headache with extra strength Tylenol. My Jack Daniels runneth over. Surely misery and misfortune will follow me and I will live in self-doubt for the rest of my lonely life. We try to take care of ourselves. We try to self-diagnose. We try to figure it out. Richard shared this morning that he himself has gone online and tried to understand a little problem that he's having and then do what it told him on YouTube. He found it to be ineffective. He ended up actually going to a physical therapist instead of doing what it told him on YouTube. And he found that the physical therapist, with just a few suggestions, actually made a difference. There is a power outside of ourselves that is worthy of following. So Jesus says he's a good shepherd. We don't have to shepherd ourselves. And in contrast, there are also bad shepherds. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 34. There, it's a profoundly dangerous chapter for leaders, for pastors. The shepherds of Israel at that time were both the civil leaders, the kings and magistrates, and the religious leaders, the priests. And their job was to provide and care for and bring structure and execute justice for the people. But Ezekiel 34 opens up with a scathing critique about what was happening. The shepherds of Israel they were, that were charged with providing spiritual leadership and spiritual teaching and spiritual care and nurture to God's people, the Lord charges these shepherds and leaders with dereliction of duty. Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds of Israel, You've been feeding and clothing yourselves and not looking after my sheep. 
My sheep were scattered and they wandered all over the mountains and every high hill. And this is very dangerous for sheep to go up on high hills. If you were here last week, you saw a little clip, um, I think, of it depends on what service you were at, of a sheep that Richard and Donna Dahlstrom took when they were up in, the, in Austria. And Richard told the story that the shepherd called the sheep into the gate and how the gate was protective to the sheep. But when the shepherd looked around, there was a sheep missing. The shepherd knew this like huge flock of sheep by name and one was missing. The next day, the shepherd went out to find the sheep and discovered that the sheep had gotten confused and thought it was following correctly when it was following the mountain goats. You know where the mountain goats went? Up into the mountain. And the the mountain goats had the ability to cling on to the sides of these rocks, right? But a sheep wasn't built that way. So the sheep tumbled and fell to its death and was found at the bottom of this kind of cliff. When God says the sheep have scattered, they're all over the hills and mountains, this is a threat to the sheep. The shepherds have let the sheep go wherever they wanted because the shepherds were too busy caring about themselves. So back to Ezekiel. God says, my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek them. So much so, says the Lord our God. He says, I am against the shepherds. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. I will be the shepherd of the sheep. I will strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the injured, and find the ones who have strayed. I'll gather the ones that have lost. God promises in Ezekiel, I will be the good shepherd. So when we hear Jesus in John saying to his disciples, I am the good shepherd, this fulfillment of scripture is coming to pass. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, this word good can have many meanings. It can be like, I'm moral, I'm exemplary, I'm worth emulating. But Jesus is not saying, follow me because I'm a good moral person. Archbishop uh, William Temple says this, it's possible to be morally upright and act repulsively. Right? Hear that again. It is possible to be morally upright and yet act repulsively. But in the Lord Jesus, says Temple, we see the beauty of holiness, the beauty of holiness. Jesus was good in such a manner as to draw people to himself. And this beauty of his goodness is seen in the act by which he would draw us. What is that act? That he lays down his life for the sheep. He's the shepherd beautiful, says Temple. Jesus is not a hired hand. Jesus is the good shepherd. Have you ever followed a hired hand or put yourself into the hands of someone who was simply hired? I'll move into a little confession now. I was probably in about the fifth grade when I was one of the popular babysitters in our neighborhood. And there were a lot of kids in our neighborhood and there was this one family up the street, two boys, And one was kind of high chair age, I don't know, 13, 15 months old. And the other guy was like a little kindergartner, kind of a mischievous, really good kid, but always kind of precocious. 
And when I uh, got there to babysit, I'd only ever babysat them before when they were basically either asleep or just this close to being asleep. Like we were at the book reading, everybody's in their jammies, it's about to be quiet in the household and mom and dad are just slipping out for a couple hours. But this afternoon, I was there for an entire like evening, starting at 4.30. And so the dad wisely thought that he should show me around the house, which included in the family room, these very large glass tanks. And in the glass tanks were snakes. Now, I do not prefer snakes at all. And when he started to describe to me the type of snakes, one of them was a boa constrictor. It's like, you are kidding me. You are gonna pay me like 450 an hour and I'm gonna be here with snakes and two small children? This is really scary. The dad said, don't worry. I'm gonna you know, put in the lid on. I'm feeding the snakes. They won't be hungry. I'm gonna close this door. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this, what am I feeding the kids? Like just get me to the kitchen where I'm really comfortable, get me away from the snakes. So there we go, in the kitchen. By the time the parents were leaving, I had the younger one in the high chair, the little guy sitting at one of those nice like kid-sized tables, and I'm bringing the food back and forth, and that's all going well. I'm feeding the younger one, this is great. The meal's going fine, everything's good. And then I clear the table, and I get over to the sink. Now. I have advised my children, and I would advise anyone who babysits, that it is good not to act like a hired hand if you're babysitting. You should do the dishes, you should not eat all the cookies or ice cream or whatever else, even though the person says, go ahead, I've found they don't really mean eat the entire pan of brownies. They mean have a brownie. So I've learned these things the hard way. So I was doing the dishes because it's what a good babysitter does. As I'm standing at the sink, I kid you not, the snake comes and it's wrapping itself around my feet. I could feel it. It was like, oh my gosh, please may this not be happening. I looked down like barely, I didn't want to see it. And there it was. So I like turned around and by now I'm walking like this. And I go over to the baby, and I'm like, okay, the baby's okay. I pick the baby up, I'm holding the baby, which that turned out to be a stupid thing to do, because the snake is on me, and now the baby and I, like the snake is wrapping itself around my feet. I go to the phone, this is back when the phone was attached to the wall with that little curly cord, and I called my, house, my home, which is about two blocks away, and I said, Dad, Mom, no, I said, Mom, get Dad on the phone, the snake, the snake. My mother's like, what snake? The snake, it's on my legs, send Dad up here immediately. So. What I desired to do was to, you know, either slay the snake with a kitchen knife or um, simply put the child down and leave both children to the mercy of the snake or whatever. It's their snake, it's their parents. I mean, I don't know. I didn't know what to do. Fortunately, my dad came to the door. Then I had to get myself to the door because I had locked the door and let my own dad in to, like, deal with the snake. It was unbelievable. So it turns out now to hired hand, that in the time when Jesus was speaking this, the rule for a shepherd who was hired, not a shepherd who actually owned the flock, but a hired hand was allowed to leave the whole flock if a wolf came. 
Because if the wolf came and threatened the flock, the wolf was a threat also to the shepherd. And it's like, we're not paying you enough to lose your life over some sheep. You can go ahead and leave the flock. But here's the thing. You have to demonstrate that it was actually a wolf, that you left your post because there was a wolf. And the way you demonstrate this is because there has to be a dead sheep. So it has to be demonstrated that the wolf came, he got a sheep, he killed the sheep, and that's why you ran away. And the sheep will all scatter, but then the shepherd will come back because the sheep will come return to the shepherd's voice. So that was the deal with the hired hand. Now, Jesus was not a hired hand. Now, after this has all been the introduction, I promise to fly us through these three points here. We know that Jesus' claim, I am the good shepherd, is true for these three reasons that we're going to look at tonight. His sacrifice, his solidarity with us as his people, and the way he protects his people, and then the intimate relationship that happens between Jesus and his followers between the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and his people. So, looking uh, in chapter 10, it goes on to say, this is, Jesus says, this is why the Father loves me so much, because I lay down my life so that I can take it back up again. No one takes it from me, oh no. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. The Father so loves the Son and so loves the world that out of this deep double love, the love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father, and the love of the Father and the Son for us, for the whole world, the Father is thrilled that the Son is willing to lay down his life for his world. John Calvin, a great Reformed theologian, says, our salvation is nearer to the Son than his own life. Our salvation is nearer and dearer to the Son than his own life. Jesus says, because I lay down my life, why? So that I can take it back up again. One of my favorite commentators, Dale Bruner, um, he has a book on John. I kid you not, it is this thick. I almost brought it in just to demonstrate to you that pastors really have a lot to study during the week, like these huge books. Um, he says, that Jesus' resurrection is the thrilling backside of his crucifixion. Uh, Bruner talks about it like a V, like Jesus goes down into the pit of death, even death on a cross. We see that on Good Friday, and then only so that he could rise again. He lays his life down. Why? So he could pick it up again. Uh, Richard asked this morning, what good is a dead shepherd? A dead shepherd is no good to the sheep. Because the sheep scatter. If the wolf comes in and kills the shepherd, the sheep scatter and they're very vulnerable. But the good shepherd, the good shepherd Jesus lays down his life so that he could pick it up again, so that we could have a life that we could never attain for ourselves. We could have a life abundant and eternal because he lays down his life for us. So both the down and the up are free will acts of Jesus. The good shepherd, he's no hired hand. Jesus says, this is why the Father loves me so much, because I lay down my life so that I can take it right back up again. No one takes it from me. Oh, no, I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus has this 
sacrifice for our sake. He identifies with us. He has solidarity with us. Jesus doesn't leave us on our own. He says, I am for you. If I am for you, who can be against you? I am the one who laid down my life for you. In this chapter of John, he says that five times, I lay down my life for you. Then later he says, greater, has no, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friend. So that's what a good shepherd does. That's what a good leader does. A good leader isn't worried about themselves. They're worried about the followers. They're, they care more for those who follow than about their own reputation or name or fame or income or uh, followers on whatever, Twitter, blogging, whatever. More about who's following, how are they doing, what's happening with them. I'm with them. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. He's united with us. He chose that. It's amazing. And then we go on to see that Jesus not only sacrifices, he not only has solidarity, but he is our refuge and our strength. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear there was a great preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he was a pastor of what we would call a mega church back in the 19th century, but he had no microphone. I don't know how he projected and uh, preached multiple times. He not only was a great preacher, he founded an orphanage, a seminary, a home for unwed mothers, and various other mission causes. And yet, in the midst of all of this, he struggled with depression and various physical ailments his entire life. And in spite of these challenges, he faithfully preached the gospel. In his commentary on that Psalm 46, Spurgeon wrote that God is good not because he causes things that seem or feel good to happen in our lives, but because in the midst of the storm, God comes closer to us than the storm could ever be. Do you like that line? God comes closer to us than the storm could ever be. This is this third point. God is intimate with us. He wants to be in deep relationship with us. He wants to know us exactly by name. He created us before, before the world began. He, he knit us together in our mother's womb. He had a purpose. He has created in Christ Jesus good works for us to do that he prepared in advance. God knows us. He willed each of us into being even twice, in, in, into being born and into being born again in Christ. So how can we understand this? Uh, we can look at the shepherd and kind of the idea of what it takes to be a shepherd. And uh, in this book, While Shepherd Watched Their Flocks, there is a description that I had to share with you. It's describes a woman who's a shepherdess this way and how she knows her sheep and the challenges that sheep face. In fact, sheep can, they say, the vast variety of ills and harmful habits that befall sheep around the world is almost comical. Listen to these. Okay, the mother who's a, a hill farmer and she raises the Welsh mountain breed of sheep, which is supposed to be a very strong breed. 
Nonetheless, they're susceptible to listen to this stuff. Braxy, pulpy kidneys, staggers, pneumonia, pastorella, twin lamb disease, cancer, hypothermia in the winter, maggots in the summer, sca uh, scab, scrappy, foxes, crows, and dogs. They push their head through fences and get stuck. They climb trees to pick at foliage, and they get hung up by their horns or by their legs. They fall down banks, get bitten by snakes, and stung by wasps. They tumble into ponds and streams. They gorge themselves on fallen ash leaves. Then they roll out on their backs, and they blow up like balloons. They poison themselves on ragwort. Ram's horns regularly grow into their own heads. They starve, freeze, get depressed, and fall ill but a good shepherd can counter all of these. Doesn't that sort of sound like us? Like all the things that we can get into that lead us astray, all the things that we're, we're tempted toward, all the false shepherds, the bad shepherds, the self-shepherding that doesn't lead us anywhere. We need the shepherd from outside ourselves who knows us, who gives his life for us. From Psalm 23, we see still waters restore our soul. God prepares a banquet in front of our enemies. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, could we not cling to the rod and the staff of God for comfort? So when my daughter was in fifth grade, I was there cheering her on and learning that back and forth, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. When she was going into the 11th grade, we were out on our back porch. And we were on our back porch because she was going to dye my hair bright pink. And she was gonna dye my hair bright pink because I was going through chemotherapy because I had stage four breast cancer. And I was about to lose all my hair, so I decided, hey, she wants a diet bright pink, let's go for it. So there I am, out on the back porch with a big beach towel around my neck, you know, so that the hair, she's gonna dye it and cut it. And now that is a weird feeling when your like 16 year old is hovering over your head with a big pair of scissors. And I remember that moment back at the camp where we both made that claim that God is good all the time. Was it true for us back on the, out on that porch when my life was threatened, just as it was when we were celebrating those strong, summer, shiny fifth graders? Absolutely. God is good all the time. And God knows what we're going through. His love is closer to us. It's deeper than any storm we're in. Because his love is going to last forever. That storm, it's going to come and go. Even our very life is going to come and go. But God is saying, I will love you now and forever. Amen. His love will never falter. His love will never change. His love will never waver. His love is for us. We see how Jesus related with the, uh, the apostle Peter. How Jesus said to Peter, this is my rock, and on you I'm going to build my church. And then Peter does all sorts of goofy things. He, he goes out uh, walking on the water, and then he looks down, and he gets afraid. He goes fishing, and he doesn't know where to put his nets, and Jesus says, put your nets down here. And he's like, hey, you, you don't know anything about fishing, Jesus. 
When Jesus says, I'm going to die, Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to die. I won't let it happen. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Like God has plans for me that you don't know. When Jesus goes on to describe what's going to happen to him and that, that all of his followers are going to scatter, even though he's the good shepherd, they're, they're not going to stay around when things are threatening. They are going to scatter. And Peter says, no, no, Lord, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, oh, yes, Peter, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. Like before another 24 hours goes by, you'll deny me three times. And sure enough, you remember that story. We're going we're gonna to hear it again on Holy Week. Sure enough, when the cock crows the third time and Peter realizes, he said, I never knew him. He's ashamed. And yet it is to Peter that Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus says again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. And you always know when Jesus says it three times, like it's really serious. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. So they've established this intimate relationship. And then Jesus says, okay, you love me? Then do what? Feed my sheep. If you love me, if you want to follow after me, if you want to be like a person after God's own heart, if you want to be a sheep who's following the good shepherd, then, then do so by feeding his sheep. There's an author that I read, I just really loved her writing, Sarah, and um, she's 28, she had breast cancer, she survived, um, she started a new life, uh, she moved from Connecticut where she was like a physician's assistant out to Oregon with no job. She finds herself on a train and she has like, completely nothing to her name, she's come out there with two suitcases and you know, bald head and lost both her, her whole chest is flat due to mastectomy, and she's kind of grieving the life. She's found out she's going to be infertile. She's like the life she thought she was going to live that was kind of laid out in front of her as a physician's assistant, Ivy League graduate, is completely gone. So she's on this train and in Oregon, and she looks across. She's come to live there for a year, like escape the old life, try to start again, and she's living with her sister. She's on this train. She sees this mom with two or three kids and they look like they're kind of in need, like there's not, they're, they're hungry, the girls are in kind of tattered clothes, and she catches the eye of this little three-year-old who comes and sits in her lap and falls asleep. And she starts a conversation with the mom, who's from Somalia. By the time they had come here, the mom, uh, the husband, left the wife and five kids. They had nothing. So this gal gets their address, and she starts to show up in their life. And the way that God moved in her life was that he brought healing to her as she kind of attached herself to this mom and five kids, who I kid you not, she describes the first time she went to their house, they were, they had, they were sitting in a circle on the floor, no furniture, and they had a bowl of ketchup, and that was dinner. So she tells the story of how God brought her alive because she started to relate with these folks. The book, I think, is called The Invisible Girls. What is it for you? What is it that God is inviting you to do as a good sheep, following the good shepherd? Because as we come to this communion table, it's Jesus who laid down his life for us. He said, I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. Come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you a new life. What good is a dead shepherd? A dead shepherd who gets resurrected and brings us with him, that's the best news of all. So friends, maybe you have someone on your heart tonight who needs to follow that good shepherd. Maybe it's you. Maybe you haven't said, okay, I give, Lord God. I'm not gonna try to self-shepherd. I'm not gonna follow all the bad shepherds of the world. I'm gonna follow you as my leader. If tonight's that night, come on forward. Write it down in the book. Talk to someone, one of our prayer ministers. Maybe there's somebody that you know that this very season, they're in the storm of their life, and they need to know that there's a power that's greater than that storm. This is a great time to invite someone into this life. Come, come to Good Friday. Find out that there's a God who gave his life. Come to Easter Sunday, find out that there is a power that is literally beyond what we can imagine. There's a power of resurrection. So this is what we celebrate at this table, that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that he laid down his life for you. And this is the cup of salvation, the cup of the new covenant, shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember, we proclaim the life and death and resurrection of our Savior until he comes again. That good shepherd is coming for all his sheep. And I hope that you will come to the table. You will go counterclockwise. And if you need to have some gluten-free bread, it's here in the blue basket. Please pray with me. Mighty God, we thank you that you are good, that you are good all the time, not when we feel it, not when we uh, know that you've kept us from danger, but even in the midst of the threats of life, you are with us, you are for us. So God, we thank you that we know this because of this table, when Jesus gathered his friends around and said, this is for you. Follow no other shepherd but this one because he is very, very good. So Lord, we come to the table asking that you would fill us up, that you would give us your power, the power of the resurrection, in Christ's name, amen. The feast of God for the people of God, come and receive.